Hello, and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Icelandic film editor Elisabeth Ronaldstorter, whose film credits include The Deep, Atomic Blonde, and one of this summer's most successful films, Deadpool 2. In our episode, we talk about Elizabeth's early start in Iceland, her thoughts on where the art of editing is leading the business and continuing to work through the years with director David Leach, who brought her back for Deadpool 2. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Elizabeth, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm very excited. Uh, we've been trying to arrange it for a while. So we just like to begin sometimes keeping things simple. Um, before you have a foreign background, just like myself, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? I'm born and raised in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, my mother uh, has worked several jobs, everything from working at the kitchen at the hospital to taking care of other people's children to making bags like and purses and stuff. She had a factory at home in the basement. Uh, my father is a painter and a writer and a philosopher. Yeah, and that's kind of my background. So partially there was a little bit of art in the family already. There was a lot of art in the family, a lot of art and philosophical discussions and chess because <laughs> I was I was fascinated to read I was looking through the credits and it sounds like you didn't really get into editing until your 30s were you watching movies beforehand were you trying to play with the idea of that could be a, a career path? no I have like a long history with movies I loved the movies as a kid I even in Iceland you got like a, a, a pamphlet with the movies in the old days that kind of told you the whole whole story of the movie and who was playing in it and pictures from the movie. I missed that. You got that pamphlet when you bought your ticket and I collected them. So I've got like shoe boxes of those pamphlets and I wrote like my critics on the back of them. So I know as a kid and growing up, I did have interest in movies. I was going to be a cinema photographer. I went to London Film School and Uh, focused on cinema photography um, but then life just leads you on in the right ways. path and I ended up in the editing room loving it I was gonna say we have so so many movies to talk about but the first one um, I wanted to mention is is a movie that I think you recommended we started emailing a couple of years ago and before even John Wick came out there is this um, Icelandic movie called The Deep Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's based on true events and it's about this fisherman who tries to survive in the freezing ocean uh, after his boat crashed off the coast of Iceland. And I was wondering, what was the biggest lesson that film taught you in regards to editing? I mean, for the first thing, it's a true story. It's an amazing story. It's such a different story because it's a survival story that changes into something else you know the first two acts are like a survival story out on sea trying to survive in the cold swimming ashore and walking in the lava etc etc and then it changes into something else but still a survival movie and I think that was what was so interesting for me working on the film how we could 
possibly tie those two different stories together. Him surviving and then him actually also a survival movie where he was dealing with survival guilt and dealing with the people in the small village he came from that were actually a bit angry at him because he was the only one that survived. I think I can only imagine how hard it must be too. You know, I was, I remember seeing the film and there's a section in the middle, obviously after the crash and before he gets back to land where, you know, it's, it's a man floating in the water. And, and I can imagine when, you know, many scenes are about dialogue and, and two people playing against each other, even if it's yourself, usually, you know, dialogue in the mirror, whatever it is, yeah. like there's conflict. And I was looking at that and I was like, wow, you literally have a man, you know, stuck in water. In the water. And yet... It works. It works, but mainly because Darre, Olave Darre, who plays the main character, is an amazing actor. But also, we did a lot of play, of obviously a lot of CGI. We did not drop him in the ocean <laughs> and keep him there, so uh, it was mainly uh, filmed in a tank, even though some of the scenes were filmed literally, yeah. by the, especially the scenes by the shore. But we did play a lot around with CGI uh, also just him talking to birds you, you know what I mean you can find small things and you small can find small things to create tension and create drama even in water yes another move that came out that year was was contraband which I did not go see had I known you edited it I probably <laughs> would have it's the same director as yeah. on the deep and it's funny, I, there is a funny story about the deep because we had like a massive financial crash in Iceland, like a year and a half, I think, before they start the principal shooting on the deep. We had like a massive financial crash. And I was in Iceland with my four kids and thinking like, what am I going to do? It's all going to hell. We had the prime minister come on TV and tell us, God bless Iceland. And that never, we don't use God or bless or whatever. So everyone was like, we were a bit shell-shocked. Like, we're done. And I was thinking, I'm not going to be able to provide. So I get this Facebook message from a, a person I don't know who is the head, who was the head of La Salle, uh, there's a film school in connected with La Salle, an art school in Singapore. And I get a Facebook message from him asking if I would come and teach editing at the Putnam Film School in Singapore. And I just sitting there in my panic, like what to do. I just sent them back and said, OK, I'll do it. <laughs> like it took five minutes and then I thought, yeah, that's it. It's a sign. And. Because at the, the time I was waiting for the deep, it was always postponed, 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 and we didn't have a start day at that point, even though we had planned to start it long before. And I thought it's not going to happen. So I went and talked to Balthasar and said, I need to go. And so I flew out like five days later. <laughs> I flew out with the whole family and started teaching at La Salle. Balthasar started principal shooting on the deep, but he wanted me to edit it. So he sent it to me, to Singapore. I was literally <laughs> by the pool in Singapore editing the deep. It was a weird experience because I was just sitting alone with all this material 
editing the movie by the pool and this amazing story about this guy freezing to death in the Icelandic oceans. But I think it, it goes to show, and we'll talk about it, you know, later, because editing is all about emotion. I think it's the one aspect of filmmaking where you could, I'm going to exaggerate now, but, you know, you could edit a movie on iMovie, you know, on, on the cheapest, smallest editing program. And not only people, you know, people want to be able to tell, because again, it's about the choices you make. You know, a camera, it can be a fancy camera against a small one, you know, but editing is about literally about the way shots cut together. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, filmmaking in general is about a conversation, conversation between different departments. No one person makes a movie, not a good movie, that's for sure. In my mind, it's something that comes out of collaboration, discussion, and passion and Emotion emotions. Well. Yeah. Um, and this scares me a bit when I watch today what's happening with the art of editing. It's becoming, it's being treated more and more and more as a technical work. When I'm like, I don't care, give me scissors, I'll edit it. You know what I mean? I don't need fancy equipment. And you started, literally. I started the computer. Yeah, <laughs> I know, and I feel so privileged because I learned the discipline of editing on film. And I think that's extremely valuable. Yeah. The next, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think perhaps the movie that introduced your work to the most amount of people, at least here in the States, is is John Wick. And John Wick came out in the fall of 2014. You know, just to create context for people, it's two fantastic stunt coordinators and, and second unit directors in their own rights who come together, become directors, get Keanu Reeves uh, at a renaissance of Keanu Reeves' uh, filmmaking time, and, and go shoot this very cheap movie, technically, because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that big of a movie and and how did you get aboard that? How did you drag I you know, into it? I know, it's just, again, life and karma and whatever. Because I had met an editor here in LA, Doty Dern. I was so starstruck. So I went to dinner with her. She edited, for example, Memento and loads of other movies. She's like a veteran and an amazing editor. And we connected and she got me into William Morris, the agency where I were, and they signed me on. But I was always working with Balthasar Kormakur, who was doing really well. And he was planning to do two guns. And then he brought me the bad news. I was not to edit two guns because it was a boys film and based on American culture. And I remember I was completely devastated. This was supposed to be my big break, like two guns with those amazing actors. So I was a bit devastated. And then my agent, because I happened to be in LA, my agent called me and asked if I can go meet those two stunt guys that are gonna direct the movie. And I remember my prejudices. I was just like, oh gosh. That's done, guys. Oh my. I'm finished. This is gonna be so bad. But I took the took the meeting because I was hurt, like and 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 like needed the project. 
I completely fell in love with those guys and their passion for stunts. I myself come from a dance background. So I, I have a certain understanding of the, you know, of the choreography. And I do treat it like a dance when I'm working on it. And their passion and understanding of their trade was stunning. And they turned out to be intelligent, fun, amazing people to talk to. And the rest is history. It's actually one of my best experiences in film was John Wick. I'm so glad to hear that. Because I think a lot of people loved it. Yeah, a lot of there people. is so much love that went into it. I mean, we argued. We were like, it got heated. and But because everyone was so passionate. But it was a massive collaboration. It's It didn't get heated in the sense that someone was running around screaming at other people. Abuses. I don't mean it that way. Just discussions. And yeah, because people cared. And people I- cared and... It was a great experience. And I think it shows because it's, again, um, you know, we had a chance to talk to, you know, Wade Eastwood, who was a stunt coordinator a while back. And I think the way he uses stunts is very similar to the way David and Chad do. And it's like, it's about, in, th- in their regards, for what they can bring as directors, like you're using stunts as storytelling device. It stops being a generic action movie. And if there's character and intention behind it, um, allow me to ask you about, because I think, again, you know, before we started talking about this, but we were talking about the fact that it's the reason I think the movie turned out so great is a collaboration of, of your editorial choices and, and David and Chad's and, and especially Jonathan Sella, who seems to have a very economic way of shooting action where thanks to you, they can allow a take to play out. You know, and it and it never gets boring. You can have entire scenes. Could you talk about receiving these long takes and rather than cutting them up like many other people would do, embracing that and, and using no, that? No, this is a discussion we had. And I think I'm not wrong when I say I think it's one of the reasons they hired me is their first act, uh, question was, what don't you like about stunts? And I told them I don't like... Extreme close-ups, fast cuts, where I don't see what's happening, where I don't see the choreography. Because John Wick isn't thanks to me, not the action. It's because they know what they're doing. And they trained for months to do those action bits. And then I didn't fuck it up. They are, in my mind, stunt gods, because they understand so well also this like the motivation going into stunts and i think because you say that allow me to quote back something you talked about it was a beautiful sentence quote i've been working with some of the best stunt choreographers and directors so for me it's easy i find it easy to edit well choreographed action but then again i come from dance background which you mentioned so i understand the basics of dance choreography and action is kind of the same thing it brings me to you know to to wonder um David is very precise. I bring up David because you guys have worked together again, but he's very precise in in regards to to shooting action, knowing exactly what he needs. And I heard that he brings you very, sometimes very little coverage in the traditional sense of way, where I would imagine they prefer to shoot fewer setups, which are beautiful and well-composed and play out, as opposed to trying to 
scramble as much. And you said you don't mind that. So what is... No, but we do have discussions on set. Like if I feel I need coverage, I will tell them. You know, that's that's one of the great aspects of being on set. At it, not necessarily on set, but being in the you same know, place, in the same yeah. place where you can go and ask for cover. But I can imagine that's the case. You know, you're shooting. I'm jumping ahead for a moment. These are all topics I was going to touch on, anyways. But you're shooting Atomic Blonde in Budapest. You're in a studio. They're still shooting. You can call them up and be like, "Guys, we're missing a close up. Go back Absolutely. and get it." Absolutely. Yeah. And that allows you to complete, especially as you say, in location. You're traveling far away. You're not going to be able to do reshoots in three months. You know, you you better get it and get it now. And that's one of the advantages, I guess, of onset. You know, having an onset editorial. So allow me to take a step back. We, we were talking about John Wick, and I think I, I was wondering what is your approach when you try and cut action in an emotional way. You know, especially when it comes to technical stunts. You're not judging performance. How do you judge a stunt performance, you know? Are, are you talking to the stunt coordinator? Do you bring them in and, and help them pick the take? Or do you try and make your own judgment and then... I make my own judgments and then I bring them in. I mean, I don't know Kung Fu. You know, that's the the truth. So, and I remember especially because then you, I've learned so much from those guys. But... Some of it is the same as with dance that you try, you know, you try to pick the takes where the legs goes perfectly up or, you know, where the back is more straight or, you know, just usual stuff. But then you, in my mind, it's ludicrous not to bring those stunt coordinators in because they they, they choreographed it. Yeah. it, they designed it. And you might be missing like a hook behind the leg or something that you miss because you don't do Kung Fu. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely necessary. I think we're talking about like a lot of, you know, members in the crew team and we're forgetting about the fact. And I was just realizing this, you know, I think the biggest similarity between Atomic Blonde and and John Wick is that you have two amazing actors, um, you know, Keanu Reeves and, and Charlize who allow you guys to go for it. They're so physically invested in a role. Absolutely. They've trained for months right. to do those long takes, and it pays off, yeah. It really does pay off. I'm fascinated in the way you often choose to construct a movie. I remember very clearly this conversation. John Wick came out, and we're emailing, and I was very excited. I was like, Elizabeth, the opening where, you know, there's an opening shot where John's car... Uh, you know, we just fade in and we see a car come to a crashes to a stop and John comes out. And I remember you specifically telling me is like we found that in editorial wasn't, you know, supposed to be that way. And what tells me about you is that you're open to the idea of, of constructing a movie in a nonlinear way. You reassemble, you know, you are open to what it's. So how do you try and move pieces around to not give too much information to the audience, but on an emotional level? The movie, I think, has to feel linear, has to have a structure. So could you talk about, you know, whether it's Wick or Atomic Blonde, how you guys try to uh, rearrange your information and, and make the movie more interesting than it was in the script or how it was shot? Yeah, I can't deny it. I am a big fan of nonlinear storytelling because I think it's such an amazing emotional tool to use. Always follow the emotion 
I think it's important first, even though I sometimes slide away from it if I get super excited, but you try to assemble the movie the same way it was shot and by the script. You try. Sometimes I just get, my fingers get too, they get too itchy and I just need to get rid of some stuff and like change a few things, but I try my best. So we have that assemble. And then you just go for the emotion. Like, for example, in John Wick, opening the movie like we do is because you go into a long... The whole beginning where he's mourning his wife, but you are catering to an action audience. Right. You're making a promise to the audience. We are making a promise. Things are going to happen. happen. And they're going to be bad. Stay with us. So that's the reason for the opening there. And also because I think you feel you you get an emotion watching that scene like him on the phone like bleeding like you get emotionally connected in with the character that carries you through his morning before he starts shooting people in the head allow me to ask you if we can get specific for a moment why what do you choose not to cut to music which i think is a very smart decision we see editors who bring in temp music and then they start getting the urge of cutting to the beat of the music, a music which, by the way, is going to be taken away and replaced. Anyways, you you spoke about finding internal rhythm to, to a Each movie. scene needs to have the rhythm it needs to have. Music is such a powerful tool. You can watch outtakes with great music, and it's going to be great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there is so much that comes with the music. I find it important to find the internal rhythm of a scene. So I don't edit in music. Um, I sometimes still layer it with music before showing it to someone because we don't have the whole soundscape that is going to be there at some point. But especially in action movies where you have all those guns and stuff, it just gets too much anyway. Every scene needs to have its own rhythm. And I like to edit without music, and I believe, and I, I don't know, people might disagree, but I believe that if you get the correct rhythm for the scene, any music will fit it. You know what I mean? And it goes to, you know, we'll talk about it in a moment, but it goes to show even, uh, not only when you're show, showing the cut to, you know, it could be anyone just to present it and digest it better, but especially audiences and test screenings, I'm sure there is a whole, you know, learning experience there where you present a, an in-progress version and you you just by, I can imagine, just by sitting in the theater quietly and seeing how people are reacting, you're learning about. That's the learning curve, and that's good. I like that. I like to, to screen the movie for an audience and just sit there and watch them. What happens afterwards isn't always so helpful. Because, no, people are asked to come to help, and people want to help. So you're pressing them to help. (laughs) So they are going to have issues that they won't have when they're watching the final film, you know, because they are not pressed to to help out. So I'm a bit twisted about those test screenings because, yes, it's helpful. And sometimes it's just helpful to see do they understand what's happening, like... Is there something we have to explain? Because, of course, you know the story so well that things can slip by. But sometimes I'm, I'm a bit twisted by it because 
I don't believe in making movies for everyone. Like, I've, not everyone is going to like every single movie. And my fear is that if you try to cater too big of an audience, yeah. you're going to flatline. Yeah, you're losing your specificity. You try and yeah. please everyone, you please no yeah. one at the same time. Yeah. I do understand it's uh, important. The more money the f in the movie, the more important it is. I'd rather work on smaller movies. I agree. I think it's about staying true to the story, you know. Like, it is, unfortunately, a, a business, you know, show business, business being a big part of it. And they try and make it for quadrants and they want to make sure that everyone understands it and it stops being specific. Do you guys try and, and schedule time for that in editorial? You know, I don't know, whatever it has. Let's say you have 10 to 16 weeks, depending on the thing. Do you try and have a couple weeks in there just so you can screen the movie and make changes if you want? Or is it a scramble where the editing is coming together as the test screening is no, coming it's together? All, it's all dated. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you schedule that in. Uh, allow me to ask you about your daily process, you know, the way you lay out your, your Avid platform, the way you go through dailies, and even the way you work with your assistant editor, Matt Absher. I wish I would never have to do a movie without Matt Absher. He's the king of post. I rely so much on him, not only for technical stuff and organization and but also as a voice, like I like to screen stuff for him to ask him, like if he thinks it works or doesn't. I love just the conversations we have. So he is a big influence, but he doesn't want to edit. No? No. What? No, that's not his thing. He's happy to. Which is fair enough. How, how does he help you set up? Uh, your avid base, you know, before you go into bins and sequence and all of it, do you try and take care of that yourself or do you have no, people I come in for you? No, I completely rely on, on him. him. I'm not a technical editor. I yes. know so much more technique than I pretend. Um, I'm so much better at it, but I also just want to keep it away because yeah. I want to be occupied with the story and the flow of the movie and not technical stuff. I think it's also dangerous because I don't believe technique makes films, which is an oxymoron because, of course, you need the technique to make the film. But I, for me, film is not a technical business, even though we need technique to make it. Right. Uh, it's an emotional job. I think it's... Um, instinct, too. Yeah, instincts are extremely important and trusting your instincts and having fun. It's such an important part of it. Just have fun. Then, then because we're talking about this, I'm curious to to open just for a moment the you know the concept of Avid versus Premiere versus Final Cut. You know, we were explaining the fact that you don't. It's not about the software. You know, it's about the choice and it's about the emotion. I know you edited on Avid the first Deadpool. We'll talk about Deadpool in a moment, but it was cut on Premiere. So were many other. You know, Gone Girl. Fincher cut on Premiere. Do you think uh, software is important? Is it? And, you know, we were talking about where editing might be going down the road. Uh, how's it going to change? First, we we did do that pull on Avid. And the reason for it is mainly because we, there was a very pressed post-production schedule. You can imagine we were shooting it last summer and it's already out. And it's a heavy visual effects movie. So the decision was taken very early to go with Avid 
not because it's necessarily better than other softwares, but the pipelines were already there and everyone knew it. So just for time concerns, we went David. I mean, the technique is going so fast and changing and it's amazing, some of the stuff. But I just hope that we do a small reality check and remember it's about storytelling, not the machines. Because I believe as human beings, we are going to keep telling stories. It's just we have to remember that the technique is there to help us tell the stories, but not vice versa. I agree. Don't rely too much on on the technology itself. Before we move into the last two projects, which I want to ask you about, I'm fascinated by the way, you know, sound design can help out. We have amazing sound design teams that come on to movies later on, but I understand that if you layer in sound effects, even during the rough cut of a movie, emotionally, when you're watching or presenting a rough cut, it just plays different. So how complex are your sound timelines when you're editing a film? How how specific do you get? And when do you say, you know what, they'll take care of that later? I mean, we try to be specific if it's sounds that we are using as a tool to tell the story. Absolutely. The guns have to be in place. I'm like really easy with those guns. Just any gun sound will do, but working with either Chad or David, it's not going to happen. You need the right gun sound. So we we try to make sure the guns guns are correct. You know, different. If there is an elevator opening, you put the elevator sound in. But we don't go into designing the whole soundscape as they do later. What's so great also about movies that your work is always being layered by other departments that make it bigger and bolder and more beautiful. Even in the DI, just seeing things like open up through their choices and the work they do there is amazing. And then you have the sound, which is a completely new layer that elevates everything. And and Mark Stokinker, we've been working with him on all those movies and he's amazing and it's fun. And again, it's no one person makes a movie. It's a collaboration. And working with David, who is a great collaborator and one of the few, in my mind, one of the few auteurs in film has been a mind-blowing experience and so much fun. So because we're talking about David, allow me to transition into Atomic Blonde, which I love so much, by the way. It's like, <laughs> I'm so happy. I, I hope I hope more people go see it because even even when the marketing comes in, by the way, it's it's hard to, to see a movie and know what it is. And then when you pass it on to marketing who tries, and we've seen this, by the way, with Guillermo del Toro movies, where they try and advertise a movie for a different thing because they got to appeal to a mass audience. Go see Atomic Blonde, by the way. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about assembling a movie and editing it together and understanding as you're going what's missing. Because I, from my understanding, you guys were very candid and talking about how much ADR went into it, how much, you know, if we're talking about arranging information and, and taking away a lot of dialogue that you might have shot in a scene and then re-giving that information in a single line later on, you can do that. You know, that's the magic of editing. So how did ADR and the post-production process as a whole inform you and and help you explore Atomic Blonde as a movie? How much did it change? 
Well, the essence didn't change. This is the, the thing. You can read a script and it's amazing. Then you go shoot it. And there, it's like shooting a script. And the script, like in Atomic Blunt, is an interpretation of a comic book that already exists. They interpret that into the script. Then you bring your principal shooting in and they interpret that script. And all this interpretation ends up on your desk and you have to interpret everyone's Again. work. Yeah. This is what I love about editing. And I have such great respect for what other people do, be it makeup or hair, everything that happens on set. Not only and absolutely the DP and, you know, everything that comes with the image, but and what the actors are doing. And they might do stuff that's not in the script. It might be a look or a walk or a... And you just have to go and mine all this stuff. With Atomic Blonde, it's such a complex story. Even though it's simple, it's still extremely complex. Again, marketing, yes. They market it to an action audience, which is fair enough. There are some amazing action scenes in that movie. But this movie is actually Arthas. And I'm still today a bit surprised we got away with it. It's an art house film. You have to read into a lot of the stuff that's happening. And this is one of my things. Sometimes it's so important to leave place for the audience interpretation of what's happening. That's my opinion. Don't force feed the audience. Because you have to leave room for them to interpret. I think if you give that room... They'll meet you halfway. They meet you halfway. Of course, you can't make like a, a giant leap where you, you know, confuse the audience, but you try not to. But you need to allow them to connect some dots. With Atomic Blunt, that was so complicated. Some of the explanations actually made it more complicated. But if you took them out... Then you, people weren't asking questions. They weren't asking questions and they could take the leap putting their own opinion or own ideas into that. Yeah. You know. Well, but it's what I like about the movie, you know, because it's you may go into it thinking it's just a straight action movie. I've seen a trailer, but there's there's a historical we're in the Berlin, you know, of the 80s. There's a historical social political context, right? To me, it makes it fun. You know, it's like you're enjoying a spy movie. It just happens to be in that place in that time. And it's beautiful. We had so much fun because... I got to do stuff that you usually can't do on such big movies. We are paying homage to a lot of art house movies, like even the, you know, the Friends wave and everything. Allow me to ask you about the staircase fight, which is perhaps one of you know the most renowned scenes in the movie. Uh, it appears to be twelve minutes, you know, a single twelve minute take. I think I'm not giving too much away by saying that there's many cuts, hidden cuts, from my understanding, not visual effects cuts necessarily, but even just editorial, you know, wet pans and all of it. And what blew me away was to hear you guys talk about the fact that the, the entire movie, once again, looks beautiful thanks to Jonathan Sella, but the person operating camera in that sequence is Sam Hargrave, yes. who's the stunt coordinator. Uh, so a stunt coordinator is operating camera. I'm curious to ask you, like, how did you come to that decision? And what did that, you know, bring to the table that wouldn't have been made otherwise. David has said this himself, that it's actually his wife and producer, super producer Kelly McCormick, that came up with the idea of the one take 
fight because he was scrambling, thinking, how can I make this special, this moment? Again, it requires a massive collaboration between departments. Can you imagine just her hair getting worse and worse and worse by its take and keeping the continuity yeah. of it or her clothes or whatever? Even the, the, the padding, you got to come in, you got to dress the whole place up with padding. I think it's also because David is so collaborative that everyone wants to do their best. I mean, I love that about David. He brings the best out of everyone. He is such a motivator and a collaborator. This is one of the few times I was actually on set because we had to match each edit and make sure. But also just things like, can we just pan a little bit in this take so we don't lose track on this guy or, you know, we're staying a bit too long away from him. You know, stuff like that. It's fun. It was an amazing time. What about Sam operating camera? Yeah, Sam. Sam is great. Uh, an amazing stunt coordinator and hopefully soon to be a director in his own, own right. The reason is this. He knows the whole choreography of the fight. He knows where everyone is going to be moving. He is a stuntman himself. God forbid if someone would kick Jonathan Sella downstairs with the <laughs> camera. <laughs> So, yeah, I think it was a wise choice. Now, when you say you were on set, were you literally getting data from DIT, plugging in, making sure the cut would work? Yeah. And then being like, okay, guys, yeah, keep it going. We can go to the next one. Yeah, and it, and it amazes me because, you know, again, we're talking about 12 minutes and it may not seem like a lot, but it's like you have this whole staircase thing. You think, I'll be like, okay, they got their scene over, you know, and it keeps going. You know, Spyglass is like, we got two more in there. You go in a room, you think it's going to be over. No, it's not over. You go outside <laughs> and you're just, I think, again, when we talk about emotion and audience expectation, just when you th they think you're going to go left, you go right and you keep going right. It's such a great, great sequence. Okay, let's begin wrapping things up. It's because Deadpool came out. This weekend, we go from, you know, we talked about The Deep and we talked about John Wick and neither in Atomic Blonde. None of these are comedies, obviously. And now we have a movie which mixes action with comedy. And I'm fascinated what it must have been for you to try and understand tone, you know, what a movie's tone is like and how do you go from one to the other. Talking about tone, David is extremely special specific about the tone he wants. Everything is easy when you trust your director. The thing with Deadpool, I was watching the movie and I was like, you could have a close-up on him and replace the line because he's behind the mask. <laughs> you and can nobody put would... anything in his mouth. Right, you know, and nobody, nobody would notice. Because you're doing so many alternative takes in terms of lines and stuff, how early on do you, do you assemble the movie that is in the script and only later begin replacing jokes and trying to see which one gets the bigger laugh or, or right away do you get all the jokes and as you're assembling, you're like, I think this would play better. They tested jokes. They had screenings, to different screenings to test different jokes. Uh, Ryan did come in. He sat with Craig mainly, trying out different jokes, like uh, going through. He did a lot of ATR. It was an interesting experience to work with so many other editors being a part of editor's team. I'm, I've never done that before. I mean, I've taken over films from other editors and edited. I've had other editors come in and help me finish, especially if there's something that needs to be picked up. 
because on all the European films I'm also editing, I might have to go on a project here. Like when I went on Contraband, I left uh, The Deep with another editor and then came back to it after we finished Contraband. So I worked with editors that way, but this wasn't like that. We were four editors in the end. It was teamwork, which is amazing. And I think I learned a lot from some of those editors. But uh, there is a greater demand for multiple editors. And it's not serving the story. It's serving tight schedules. I agree. And I wish we would take a breather and respect the needs of post. Not only editing, but visual effects and sound. And understand it needs time you yeah. can't press it also because for me making a film is not about time it's not about just work 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 and boom it's done here you go did it in a week that's not how it works for me editing is like carving wood it's layered work one layer at a time no one is gonna just edit a scene and it's perfect you're gonna find it you're gonna explore you gotta find it. it and explore it and explore it as a part of a whole each scene is there. It's not just scenes strung together. It's a film. It's one whole. It needs to come out as a one experience. Elizabeth, I can't thank you enough for giving us so much of your time. It's been so much fun. Um, again, Deadpool 2 came out this weekend, and I look forward to many more movies. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here with you. Thank you. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Elizabeth for welcoming us into her home to record this conversation on a Sunday morning. If you like this episode, please take a moment to like, review, or share the link to the podcast with any friend and fellow film lovers who you know will enjoy these conversations. Thanks again. And stay tuned later this month for a brand new in-depth conversation with stunt coordinator Wade Eastwood where we creatively break down the stunts and sequences of the upcoming Mission Impossible Fallout. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.